If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 2 Peter. We're going to be looking at 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 8, uh, which we've been in this, gosh, we've been in this passage of Scripture now for uh, eight, eight weeks, nine weeks, something like that. Next week, we're wrapping up this, this series, um, but it's been really a, a, an amazing time of, of working through this question, how, how does the gospel change us? How does change happen in the life of a, of a Christian, or how does change happen in our lives in the, anyway? Um, and so we've been working our way through um, this, this passage of Scripture and a couple of verses in here in particular. Today, we're focusing on where Peter is going to say, add to your brotherly affection, love. And what does it mean to do that? So I'm going to read the passage in a minute, but, but let me ask you a question to start with. And the question is this, and it's kind of a doozy, and it's one that I'm asking you now because I want it to be kind of rolling around upstairs for a little while while, you're, while, we're, while we're going here. And the question is this, who, who is your enemy? Who is your enemy? Who could walk in this room and sit down in an empty chair next to you right now and make your blood just kind of go cold? You know? Who, who, who would that person be that would make you just feel instantly angry? Here's another question. Do they know <laughs> that they hold this place in your life? What have they done? What do they continue to do? What would make for peace in that relationship? Now, I, I talk about this with some trepidation because I, what I don't want you to hear me saying is if you have enemies in your life, just come on, people, get over yourselves. Because here's the thing. Some of us, when we answer the question honestly, who are my enemies and what have they done, uh, we'd be really embarrassed at how petty our you know, confession would be. Well, here's who they are and here's what they've done. And it's, but for others of us, there's just legitimate hurt. There's legitimate woundedness. There's real pain, real offense, real ongoing. It's almost, it's like, yeah, it's right to say, if I've had an enemy in my life, this person has done the most violence against me. So I know that we're talking about that. But then there's this question that's just out there. And the question is, is there hope? Is there hope for forgiveness? Is there hope for peace in our hearts when we live in a world where there exists such a thing as enemies? So with that said, I want to read this passage of Scripture and then talk about enemies in the light of talking about what it means to love. So this is 2 Peter 1, 3 through 8. Peter writes this, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers or participants in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, then, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love." For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, 
They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us passages of scripture like this that just mine what's in our hearts, uh, that we might know you better and know how to live in this world, this side of glory, in a way that is good for us. Uh, Father, thank you for the gift of the gospel. Thank you for the hope that we have in all that is being wrong, in all that is wrong being put right. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the community that you're developing here and the relationships with each other. And Lord, we ask that you would, uh, that you would continue to work in our lives to help us to know you, to trust you, and to live out of a place of having been so well loved by you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I have a prop. I need to get my prop. Because, see... I love baseball. Baseball has been particularly good to me this week. Uh, I have a friend who is now a much better friend who brought me a patch from Game 7 of the World Series in St. Louis. I love baseball, and I love this patch. And I love you, Josh. And I love coffee, and I love Calvin and Hobbes, and I love that movie, A River Runs Through It. I love that movie, A River Runs Through It, and I love my wife. Oh, I love my wife. I love my kids, all four of them, differently, as much as I can. I love them. I love them. I love them. And I love God, and I love baseball. We use that word to mean a lot of things, don't we? I don't love my wife the same way I love baseball, thankfully, you know. I love her more than I love baseball. Do I need to say that? You guys are looking at me like, you're a jerk. (laughs) But we we use this word, this one word, love, L-O-V-E, and we use it to apply to a lot of things. And sometimes it's good for there to be some clarification, like, what do you actually mean when you use this word? And in the Bible, uh, we get, in our English, we get this word love used a lot. But in the original Greek, there's a couple of different words. There's actually four different words that the Greek uses uh, in the New Testament for love that are pretty distinct from each other and pretty important. When, when we see them, we see, okay, this is this kind of love that's being referred to here. C.S. Lewis wrote a book a while back called uh, The Four Loves. These are the four loves that he's talking about, the, the loves that the Greek uses in the New Testament. And here's what they are. I want to tell you what they are. Um, the first is eros. This is romantic love. This is... This is Somebody saying to a lover, I, I'm in love with you. You know, it's that kind of love. Um, then there's what's called storge. And storge is this, uh, it's the kind of love between a parent and a child or between people who live together in the same house. Or It's this affection of familiarity. You know, like we're together in life and I love you and, and I'll do anything for you. And, and, and you know, I, I would, you know, I'd take a bullet for you. You're, you're, I have this kind of affection for you. Then there's what's called phileo or phileo. And this is um, the word that we actually talked about last week when we talked about add to your godliness brotherly affection. It's this idea of brotherly affection. So the, the city Philadelphia is made up of two words that mean city and brotherly love, you know, the city of brotherly love. So phileo is this idea of brotherly affection, that there's this deep care uh, between friends, this, this bond of friendship. And then last, you get to agape love. 
Uh, perhaps you've heard of this, I'm sure most of you have, but this is the love that God has for his people. Agape love is sacrificial, it's selfless, it, it's, it's a love that doesn't depend on people responding to it a particular way in order for it to be given. Um, it's unconditional love. And this is the way that God loves us, through a choice of his own will to love. He's not needing me to receive the love in any particular way. It's love that he extends to me because of who he is, his character. So, you know, when, when, a, when a bride and groom stand at an altar and they're all nervous and shaken and they're holding each other's hands and they're doing these vows, right? They say, I will love you for better or for worse, rich or poor, sickness and health, plenty of want, you know, as long as we both shall live. That's a promise. And what they're saying in that promise in a lot of ways is I'm going to love you with agape love and not just eros, and not just phileo, and not just storge. I'm going to love you in a way where whatever happens, I will love you. If we run out of money, I will love you. If you get really, really sick, I will love you. If I get really, really sick, I will still love you, you know? And, and so that's agape love. It's a love that doesn't depend on the way it's received, but it's a love that is given because of the one who's, who's giving it. And this is the way that God loves us. But it's also the way that he calls us to love one another. He says, love each other like this, with this kind of agape love. And so this is the word that Peter uses today, add to your brotherly affection, love. It's like this chain we've been pulling our way kind of hand over hand for the last eight weeks of, of add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and knowledge self-control. And we just kind of, and so we've ended up here now with Peter saying, add to your phileo, Agape, add to your love, love, right? So, so what is he saying? What does he mean here? What does this look like for us? Before we dig into this, I think it would be good for us, especially in this particular topic, to just take a brief minute and to review where we've been in this series. Would that be good to kind of go back and just say, all right, here's, here's where we've been? Because Peter is calling us into this life where we're leaning on the power of the gospel to bring transformation to our lives. We've called this series Gospel Transformation. We've been talking about change. How, does it, how are we transformed by the gospel? And one of the problems whenever you start doing that, whenever you start giving something a title and you start using this language over and over, is it's easy for it to kind of become emptied of meaning. Well, what are we talking about with this word transformation? What do we mean? What is it that we want to see or hope to see transformed? What does the gospel promise to change? You know, is it just, well, God's going to give me a better attitude? You know, or, or is it more than that? And the answer that Peter gives us, the answer that Scripture gives us, is that what the gospel means to change in us is not a small answer. It is a huge answer. Let's, let's see it, because what it means for the gospel to transform us is that everything that is broken in me will be set right. Everything. So it's not just fear. Do you experience anxiety or fear? It's not just fear, but it's the reasons that we're prone to anxiety in the first place, that too. It's not just lustful appetites, but it's the reasons we're so afraid of real intimacy, of being really known and really loved at the same time, that is going to be changed. It's not just a tendency to misrepresent or to spin the truth in our favor, 
But it's even, what is it about you that needs to so misrepresent the truth so that you would look faultless and unindictable? What is it in you that needs that? Because everybody knows that's not true. Why do you want to be that way? Why do you want to look that way? This list could go on and on, but Peter's talking about seeing not just the broken things that we do, but also the reasons that we do them being set right in the light of the truth of the gospel of the grace of Christ. That is an amazing thing. We need to understand how big it is when we're talking about the gospel changing us because this in a nutshell is what the promise of the gospel is. Are you ready? It's this. By the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, all of our sin and brokenness is dealt with and we are restored to the relationship with our maker that we were made to know and enjoy for all eternity. That is God's agape love toward us. How big is that? Well, what I just answered was the question, what is the meaning of life? Is there a bigger question than that? Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? What's the point of all this? The gospel says there's an answer to that question. That's a legitimate question. That's a God-given question that you have on your heart that matters. And the answer is more glorious than you could ever begin to understand. You were made to know and delight in and live richly in the presence of the maker and lover of your soul, the one who put you together, and you were made to live in his presence for all eternity. And the promise of the gospel is that This is what Christ qualifies you for when your faith is in Him. And He qualifies you for this forever. Everything that is wrong, put right. Forever. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. So we say then, okay, I understand that when I leave this earth and I go to be with Him in the sky or whatever that looks like, that it's all going to be right. But what about right now? What about right now? I hear these promises. My life doesn't look this way. What is that? What do I need for this to become real today? And what Peter says is um, everything that you need for this to become real today, God has already given to you. Everything that you need for life and godliness, he has given you and he's done it so that you could participate with him in this life, this side of glory, by living in the reality of the great and precious promises of the gospel. That's what the first couple verses were that we read today. Is Peter saying everything that you need for life and godliness has been given to you in Christ. Everything. So that doesn't help us necessarily if we're feeling like, ah, but I still, okay, so you're telling me it's been given to me, but I don't understand, like I still, it's not what my life looks like, you know? Help me understand. Now, Peter, the one who's writing these words, is a person who personally knows what it's like to have a life transformed by the gospel. He was one of the disciples who walked on the water with Jesus, who was present at the transfiguration, who denied knowing Jesus when Jesus was being tried and, 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 and crucified and, and brought this, this shame upon himself of rejecting and denying ever knowing the Lord. And the Lord restored him and said, I called you to be a fisher of men. I meant that. I mean for your life to be wound up for, the, for all eternity with mine. And I am keeping you and I'm calling you back. Even though you betrayed me, even though you denied me, I love you and you love me. 
And I've given you this love, and I have this call on your life. And so he, there's nothing in his life that hasn't been changed by the gospel. And now he's writing this letter. These are probably some of the last words that he ever wrote. He wrote these words from prison. The, the rest of chapter 1, if you scan ahead later on your iPhone, later. Um, not right now, but later on your iPhone. Um, he, he, he says, you know, I believe that I'm going to die. I believe that the Lord has revealed to me that this imprisonment is going to end in my execution and I'm going to be with him and I'm going to leave this earth and I'm going to leave this body behind. He believes that. He knows that he's writing this letter as a dying man. These are some of his last words and he's imploring young Christians, embrace the gospel, embrace it in an intentional, self-examined, measured, and hopeful way. Participate with these gifts that God has given you. How do we do this? How do we live? in light of the fact that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. We've been unfolding what Peter says it looks like to participate with the divine. That's what we've been doing. That's what he gets into this list of, so add to your faith then obedience, and add to your obedience knowledge. Here's, what, here's where we've been. This is the big summary of kind of where we've been for the last eight weeks. He says in verse 1, look, if, if, if your righteousness comes from faith in Jesus Christ, then your faith is as valid as my faith, Peter's saying. Saying it's not like, you know, the Christian in Nashville, Tennessee in 2011, your faith is somehow not as valid as Peter's was because he walked with Jesus. He says in verse 1, no, your faith is as valid as, as any of the apostles. And because this is so, you don't lack anything that you need for life and godliness. And because this faith is so real, and because God has provided everything that we need for life and godliness, Peter then says, participate. Participate with the Lord in what he's given. Intentionally engage with these spiritual gifts. So then he says, add to this faith that you've been given. Add to it obedience or goodness or virtue. And we talked about that. We said this means we obey God even when we don't really understand sometimes what a particular command is for. And the reason we obey is because we, we trust the one who gives it. We trust that he's good. But he says, but don't just live in blind obedience. Add to your obedience knowledge, the truth of the word of God informing our obedience. And add to that knowledge, self-control, this Godward inquiry into why do I do the things that I do? And Lord, restrain me, restrain me. And to our self-control, add steadfastness. We persevere in the face of hardship. And to steadfastness, we engage with godliness, this humble reverence for God with a desire to glorify Him. And to godliness, we take up brotherly affection, this incarnational love of seeing my life as connected to your life and seeing your burdens as my burdens. And now here we come to the end of this chain that began with faith. And He says, to your brotherly affection, add selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. And this is how we change. Yay! Is that confusing? Can we just be done now? Oh, I just need to add agape love to the end of this chain of things. And presto, my life is going to be awesome. Everything's going to be right. Everything's going to be fixed. What's, what do we need to understand? What we need to understand is that this call to participate with the Lord in loving others with agape love is a, <laughs> uh, a call that, that requires from you an incredible amount of courage to 
honestly acknowledge what you really needed Christ to do for you. Here's what, let me say this another way. To, to love others with agape love is to participate in the love with which God has loved you. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, when you look at the way God loved us, sacrificially, selflessly, it means that he loved me with a love of, of knowing the stuff that's in my heart. He knows the stuff that I'm made of. He knows the way that I rebel. He knows the appetites that I have. He knows the stubbornness in me. He knows the arrogance in me. And he's not saying, I'm going to love you when you really kind of lighten up on those things, but I'm going to love you in such a way that because I know those things about you, I'm going to love you in a way that's going to peel back your, your grip, your death grip of control on your life one finger at a time until you are just dependent and helpless and surrendered to receiving this love from me. It's a beautiful thing. But here's what agape love says. It says, look, in the weakness of who you are, I'm going to be strong. I'm going to be strong in your weakness. I'm going to engage you in the confident hope that grace can heal us where we're broken, enemy. I'm going to engage you in the hope that grace can heal us. And the reason I will is because I am living proof. I am living proof that grace can heal broken relationships because God has reconciled me to himself. John puts it this way. He says, we love because he first loved us. We love, I love, because he first loved me. That's my only hope at loving well, is understanding that I'm loving out of a response to this grace and this mercy and this compassion and this self-sacrificial love that God has extended to me. What does the Bible say was true about us when he first loved us? We love because he first loved us. When he first loved us, who were we? What was our condition? What was the state we were in? Were we just just at odds with God, disagreeing on some theological points maybe, or just thinking, ah, you're okay, God, but I'm not really into you. I've kind of got my own thing going. Were we just kind of uh, on different pages what, scripture talks about this, and Scripture says, you know, you can't be just neutral with, with the one who made you. Here's how it says it. Uh, this is Colossians 1. This is Paul writing. He says, uh, you know, who were we when he first loved us? He says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. What he's saying is before the love of Christ came into your life, you weren't just estranged. You weren't just off doing something else. You were in your heart and in your mind at war with God. You were his enemy. Not because he was fighting a battle with you, but because you were fighting a battle with him in your heart. You were so deeply offended. You maybe never articulated it, but you were so deeply offended that he would dare to call himself the God of all things because you were so convinced that that was your title, that that belonged to you. No, I'm the God of all things. I'm the center of everything. I'm the most important person in the room. Me, me. And this has been something that people have done historically throughout time. And Paul says, it's not just that you were estranged or distant or aloof. It's that you were an alien. You were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But then he says this, now... He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you, this is the result, 
holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firmed, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. These are the only two places Scripture says you can be spiritually. You can be an enemy of God at war with Him in your mind and heart. Or you can be so reconciled to Him by the grace of Jesus Christ that when He looks at you, you are holy, righteous, and spotless in His sight because of the righteousness of Christ on your behalf. That's it. Those are the only two places you can be. That's, that's the, the gospel. If you want to know what the gospel is, that's the gospel. Is that that's the kind of reconciliation we have to God through Christ. That we were enemies and he made us spotless, above reproach, holy in his sight, without accusation. Because of Christ. Because of Christ. What does that mean? That means that this is the agape love of God toward me is that he took me in this position where I was so rebellious and at war against him, and he gave me peace. He brought peace. What does God do with his enemies in the gospel? He doesn't just make peace. He reconciles them to himself so that the relationship is whole. This is agape love. This is agape love. The very fact that he could call anybody to extend agape love to another person means you've been rescued by agape love already. It means that you, you've been rescued from this eternity of loneliness and misery and separation from the one that you were made to enjoy forever. You've been rescued from that. You've been saved from that. And so love in that way. But it's hard for us because it's so unconditional. It's so just, I'm loving you out of a grace that has been shown to me. I'm not loving you because of anything particularly attractive in you. And that's just so hard for us. We don't work that way. C.S. Lewis talked about this in The Four Loves. It's hard to receive agape love. And here's, here's why. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. How difficult it is to receive and then to go on receiving from others a love that does not depend on your own attraction. Part of the difficulty stems from the relative inexperience we have with being loved for any other reason. We're so used to being loved for the good things about us, for the good qualities that we have, right? How much darkness and ugliness wells up inside of us because of that? Because of this conviction that you won't love me unless I impress you. Unless I do something or have some quality that makes me lovely in your eyes. Agape love says, mm, the love that I have for you doesn't uh, find its power, its potency in how wonderful you are. It finds its power and its potency in believing that I have been so loved by God, even when I was an enemy of his, and so redeemed and so restored and so reconciled to him, how could I not love you more than you deserve and more than I think I can give? I'm called to this. I'm called to this, not as a mustering up sort of, all right, all right, I'm going to learn to be okay being around jerks. You know, but, but it's this, wait, no, understand, understand that brokenness in them, that thing about them that, that makes you just not want to be around them. You've got stuff like that. You've got stuff like that. That's part of being broken in this world. And the gospel is saying, ah, but agape love says, I know, I know, I know. And I am not going to walk 
away from you. When God calls you to selfless, sacrificial love, it's a call to participate. Participate with him in the way that he loves you. This is what Romans 5 says. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. That kind of sacrificial love. So think about your enemy. Think about that person, those people that come to your mind when you think about this. What would it look like for you to love them? Now, hear me. Don't check out now. Because I just said, think about your enemy. What would it look like for you to love them? And I am not saying you should be minimizing the offenses of others towards you. You should just say, I know you abused me my entire life, but I'm just going to pretend you didn't, and we're just going to be okay. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. See, because here's the thing about the gospel. The gospel never minimizes offense. The gospel never minimizes offense. It never looks at sin and says, ah, we'll just pretend that never happened. What does the gospel do? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The second person of the Trinity stepped out of eternity and into time and took on flesh and lived a life of perfect righteousness we couldn't live, died the sinner's death that we all deserve to die in our place, took on the wrath of God toward our sin. Yeah, that's not minimizing my sin. So what does it look like to love your enemy? I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like you putting on a strong face and deciding, all right, I'm just going to be bigger than this. It can't just be a resolve of your own will. What it looks like to love your enemy is to understand if there's grace that can reconcile an enemy of God like me to the maker and lover of my soul, then there's grace to bring peace to my heart in this relationship with this enemy, which may, ne- may mean I, never, I still never speak to them again. You know, it, maybe, I don't know. But, but it also may mean, for those of you who are like, yeah, but I identified more with the petty end of things early on, that my enemies is all petty and kind of ridiculous. It may mean that you can just say, you know what? I'm, my anger, my even regarding this person as an enemy, is probably a greater sin against them than whatever offense it is that I, that I think they've done against me. But that the Lord would say, look, 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 look. Love flows from, from me. It flows from me and not from you and not from the person receiving it. This is what agape is. I would submit to you we underestimate our pain. We underestimate the way that we offend other people. But here's the thing about enemies and agape love is that if I'm going to love you, if I'm going to love you with agape love, then I can't, I can't stand in emotional distance from you. I can't look at you as a person who says, you've, you've betrayed me too many times and I'm just kicking you to the curb and I'm done. I'm just, you know... Agape love says, no, you can't stand there. You can't stand there. I can't stand in a place of unforgiveness, even when your offense against me is one that you won't even repent of. I can't stand in a place of unforgiveness. I need to forgive independent of your repentance. Agape love says that I can't keep hiding the gospel and I can't live where I'm insisting on my rights. I'm insisting on my rights without any regard for you, because love doesn't insist on its own way, right? But how many of our situations where we have enemies are really situations where we look at somebody and we say, I insisted on a right of mine, and you did not respect that right that I have, and therefore I'm mad at you. I don't like you. 
or you insisted on a right with me unrelentingly, and I'm mad at you for that arrogance. How many of our relationships are broken because of that? What agape love looks like is this. My love for you can't rest on the condition that you receive it well. My love for you can't rest on the condition that you receive it in the way I want you to. My love for you cannot demand that you never sin against me again. Can't do that either. And my love for you cannot require that you earn it in order for it to be given. Because that's not how agape love works. Agape love empties itself of its rights. It's patient. It's kind. It's gentle. It doesn't insist on its own. It rejoices in the truth. It grieves over the wrong. It always hopes. It always trusts. It always perseveres. It never fails. Who's your enemy? Who's your enemy and what would make for peace? We're going to take about five minutes here of just silent reflection. And this is a time for you, for us, to do some application of thinking through the way that we've been loved by God, what it means to be on the receiving end of the love of Christ, to be reconciled to Him in such a way where He says, you're holy in my sight. What does, it, what does it mean then for me to love out of that? Because He loved me, I love. And so here's the questions I want to ask you. And I want, there, there, are two, there, there are two questions, really. And um, from them, I want you to think about, okay, what needs to happen in the month of November uh, for me to love and to participate with the Lord in this love that he loves me with? Um, who do I need to go to? Who do I need to talk to? So here are the questions. Who is your enemy? And what would make for peace? That's kind of one question bundled together. Who is your enemy and what would make for peace? Second question. Whose enemy are you? And what would make for peace? So who are your enemies and what would make for peace? And whose enemy are you? And what would make for peace? What would it look like to love your enemies with agape love? Pray with me. Lord, as we take this time here to reflect, um, uh, Lord, I am just convinced everybody in this room can come up with someone that we would say is, uh, if not a full-on enemy, somebody that we'd be happy enough to just never interact with again, which is another uh, way of calling them an enemy. Um, Father, would you, would you help us with that? Would you help us to look into the reality of where our hearts are and, and, and where, where we're so angry? Uh, Lord, would you help us to, to regard this call to love with selfless, sacrificial unconditional love as a part of, would you help us to see that just the connection, that this is how we understand your love for us, that this is how we see the gospel change us, is we, we love in the way that you loved us. And so, Lord, thank you for loving us that way. We, we just thank you for that. And uh, Father, I ask that you, you, would, you would be with us now in these, in these minutes, these brief minutes of helping us to, to be honest, deal honestly with, with who our enemies are and whose enemies we've become. And uh, Lord, help us to see what would make for peace. Peace in our own heart, peace where, the, where it's possible in those relationships. Um, Father, peace with, with you. Uh, and Lord, I, I thank you so much for the promise of the gospel that tells us that while we were uh, 
alienated from you in our minds because of our evil behavior and were enemies, you reconciled us to yourself by Christ's physical body through death in such a way that we're without blemish and we're free from accusation. Thank you. Thank you for that. We don't deserve that. It is a beautiful, beautiful truth. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.